course, that's a fugazi. All right. That's a fugazi? How do you know it's a fugazi? You looked at it for two seconds. What, it's a fake? fake. Yeah, I know what a fugazi is. It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? Mm. Fugazi. It's a fake. Yeah, fugazi, fugazi. It's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a... Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Coin Fugazi. Welcome to the Coin Fugazi podcast. I'm your host, C. Edward Kelso. And this is a segment taken from a much more in-depth interview in Coin Fugazi podcast episode one, which is published in its entirety as a standalone episode. But what you're listening to is a part of that much, much, much longer uh, discussion. So if it sounds a little truncated or cut off at one point, you're like, wait, wait, where did that come from? Uh, that's because it, again, is a part of that much longer, much more in-depth uh, interview in episode one. So if you want more of this discussion, uh, more in-depth, or you want to see where it was, where it came in the context of another com- part of the conversation, check out Coin Fugazi episode one with Jonathan Tumim. Otherwise, enjoy. Coin Fugazi proudly uses Read.Cash to help distribute our content. Head out to Read.Cash forward slash at Coin Fugazi, all one word, and check out how we're incorporating the platform. Then also check out how people and businesses from all over the world are using crypto as a currency, rather than just speculating, to demonstrate the power of peer-to-peer electronic cash. Tip, comment, blog, join communities, and so much more. That's R-E-A-D dot C-A-S-H. Read dot cash. To the OGs for his work as a junior dev on Hearn's Bitcoin XT and then for co-founding Bitcoin Classic and really a big block advocate and someone that, again, people in the space, in the know, uh, have a a great deal of respect for. Uh, Of late, he's become... uh, I wouldn't say the center of the controversy, but he's he's certainly in there uh, with regard to Bitcoin Cash and everything that's going on with it. Uh, I'd say so he, maybe the the match that started the fire. <laughs> uh, he's sort of the John Brown uh, of our of our current civil war here, and uh, so the Harper's Ferry is the DAA. We'll get into all that, but first, I, I'm being rude. Thanks, Jonathan, so much for taking time out to to speak to me. My pleasure. All right, so let's get on with it. I think uh, before we get into the development stuff, I-, I was pretty impressed by your work early on when, if memory serves, in the COVID crisis here in the United States, we were getting information from all the top dogs, uh, at least government officials, that I- if anything, you know, masks were either not important or you know, it wasn't a big deal or, you know, give it over to healthcare professionals. And I remember you, because I follow you on Twitter, all of a sudden kind of popping into this idea. Um, you, you really took took to the mask thing early, right? Yeah. I mean, like 
there's a few ways of framing this. Um, one way of framing it is that I'm just naturally uh, anti-authoritarian. And so like whenever the authorities said that masks didn't work, I just had to tell them that they were wrong. Um, but uh, another way of framing it is that, see, I'm actually not a developer. Um, I, I know a lot of people think this, but okay. um, my degree is actually in molecular biology. Um, I'm a neuroscientist by training. And so uh, when I saw the things that the, that, you know, the CDC, the WHO were saying about masks, I dug into research and I saw that, um, that the research did not support the position that they were taking. Um, the research also did not quite support the opposite position um, that I wanted to take. Right. Um, that basically what we had was an instance in which we had an absence of evidence. And they were saying that in the absence of evidence, we should conclude that they don't work. Whereas my, my position is that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. There's no evidence of an, of an absence of effect of masks. Um, and if anything, there was um, circumstantial evidence of a very, very strong effect, protective effect of masks. And the size of that effect was exactly what you would predict from the physics studies. Um, basically, like for surgical masks, uh, there was a study done in Australia that looked at um, how likely a parent was to get sick with influenza if they were caring for a child who had influenza, if they were or were not wearing a surgical mask or a, uh, a P2 mask, which is like the equivalent of an N95 in Australia. And um, from physics simulations, we can see that for you know, 0.1 or 0.3 micron particles, about 70-ish percent of the particles are blocked um, if you're inhaling through the mask uh, by a regular uh, cheap surgical mask. Um, so that means about 30% get through. And what they found in this study was that giving masks to people did not protect them from the virus. Um, and that was their main outcome measure. Um, but if you looked at whether the people actually wore the masks, only about 30% of them wore the masks. And of those 30% who wore the masks, uh, they were 74% less likely to get uh, the virus. They were less 70, 74% protected um, mm -hmm. against influenza. And uh, that latter finding was statistically significant, but uh, basically it, it, this is what's called a post hoc uh, analysis. Right. And uh, the standards of evidence-based medicine say that post hoc analyses are uh, not trustworthy because they're susceptible to p-hacking. They're susceptible to this thing where you just do a bunch of comparisons afterwards and you only report the comparisons that ended up being statistically significant. Um, and there's a bunch of other studies that are you know, similar that like either had very low adherence rates um, or small sample sizes or both. And so like in most of these cases, uh, most of these studies, there just wasn't strong evidence um, saying that they didn't work. Um, there was like some circumstantial evidence saying that they might work really well, they might not work at all, we don't really know. Um, and ultimately, um, when, when the, the virus came, when COVID came, um, uh, the scientists who were making these public statements were not the scientists who had actually done the uh, basic research, and they weren't aware of all these quirks in the research, all of these caveats and reasons why the research was inconclusive. So like the, the CDC was citing um, several studies that um, had somewhat strong evidence in favor of a very large effect size, but they cited it in such a way to say that masks didn't work. Like there was a, a Jefferson from 2008, one, one of the uh, papers from Hong Kong showed that 
uh, 68% of people who wore masks during SARS-1 in 2000, 2003 uh, were protected from the virus in a correlational study. Um, but the CDC cited this study as uh, show, actually, is it CDC? Anyway, somebody cited this study as mm -hmm. showing that um, uh, surgical masks are no, no worse, or sorry, uh, uh, N95 masks are no better than surgical masks. Like there was no statistically significant difference between the two. And then they also claimed elsewhere that surgical masks were ineffective. That meant by extension that you would expect for N95 masks to be uh, ineffective right. unless they were fit tested and they had like this whole um, uh, glass house of conclusions that were uh, built on these um, very rigorously or very like precise logical connections um, that ignored the uncertainty in the, the, the underlying uh, findings and ignored the difference between a non-positive finding and a, pos uh, a finding of no effect. Like there's just because you don't see anything doesn't mean uh, that it's there, but you're just like, you know, um, like Luke Skywalker with the, the blaster covers over his head while waving his lightsaber around. It's, you know, just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah. So, and well, so, the, yeah. the reason that I, I bring it up in the context of our talking about um, things Bitcoin Cash today is I think it highlights a few things, and as, as you already uh, alluded to sort of your anti-authoritarian streak, but also what an empirical guy you are. So you're just one of these dudes who will just deep dive into a subject, as we're hearing now, you know, just come through everything, come to a conclusion, and then you act on it. And so you take all this information, even though the – and this is long before – uh, government actually starts <laughs> mandating masks in some cases uh, and fining people for not wearing them. So at this point, they're at the absolute opposite side of that equation, uh, literally encouraging people not to use them or not buy them or hoard them or whatever. And so you take all the information you've done and what what happens next? Yeah, I mean, just back up a little bit. Um, the anti-authoritarian thing, that was a joke. Um, I'm not actually anti-authoritarian. <laughs> I'm a-authoritarian. Um, and so like what I do is I, I look at the evidence and I, I make decisions for myself uh, based on what I think the evidence says. And then if I find that there's an authority figure who disagrees with the evidence, uh, that starts to like get me a little bit um, mm. like it, it's the there's somebody wrong on the Internet kind of uh, phenomenon, but times 10. Um, because it's not just somebody wrong, it's uh, the person who's making the decisions for everybody. And I consider that, you know, when, when there's a, a massive group decision that's being made that's incorrect, I consider that to be a much bigger problem than when there's a couple of people who are making the incorrect decision. So, mm. yeah, so, um, so when I find something that I think is um, an underappreciated truth, uh, that tends to be what I fixate on and what I, what I try to do. And this is just... Kind of always been the um, what makes me tick and what motivates me. It's always been finding these things that um, we, as a group, as a society, as individuals, um, should be doing better or doing more of. Yeah, us. and yeah, I can definitely you know see that thread just through our conversations and me watching your work from afar. So, what do you do with this information with the mass? Just just to kind of put a bow on this particular segment. Um, you get this information, but you actually do something with it. You don't just sit there and postulate and pontificate. You actually um, turn it into a form yeah. of activism. 
So I, I try to figure out, uh, given this information, what can I do? Um, can I do something personally that will make a difference? Can I uh, convince other people to change their behavior in a way that'll make a difference? And like, what's going to be the, the path that I can take in order to make the greatest impact? And with the masks thing, I saw two paths. One was um, uh, beware, be aware, sarcasm coming, social media warfare. Um, you know, I could go on and uh, publish um, either statements on Twitter or on Reddit, or I could <laughs> uh, talk to my friends on Facebook and convince them of the importance of masks so I could write articles on it. Um, and I, I started to actually do some uh, research, um, hoping to uh, turn it into a like uh, peer-reviewed article or preprint um, by going around and collecting YouTube videos of people walking on the streets in, in different cities at different times and uh, measuring how many of them were wearing masks and what type of masks they were wearing uh, so that we could do a correlation to see if that explains some of the variance in how quickly the disease spread. Um, so I did this for Japan and I've got like a, a graph uh, of uh, the mask use over time in Japan and did a little bit of this for China, did a bunch of it for New York City. And I've got these actually uh, up on my, on one of our uh, websites on maskwatch, uh, sorry, maskprotectors.org slash maskwatch, if anybody's curious. Um, but I never like got it totally refined. And eventually the New York Times uh, did something very similar and, and published a much better um, uh, map of mask usage. So I was really happy to see that uh, get out. Um, but what else could I do? Well, one of the issues in like March, April um, was that, so, so uh, first one of the things that happened was that when the virus hit China, um, China ran out of masks. And so China started asking everybody all around the world, hey, can you send us masks? And this was done on uh, personal levels mostly, um, but also through like the Chinese embassies and through um, networks of Chinese Americans or Chinese nationals who are uh, living abroad. And one of my friends, I used to live in China for a while, by the way, um, one of my friends uh, from Shenzhen started doing this. She started getting and organizing um, shipments of masks from the United States to China. And then finally China got, uh, got the virus under control and then it started spreading elsewhere. It started spreading in first Italy and Iran, and then Spain, and then the United States and the UK. And um, the United States had had most, or a lot of its uh, supplies, a lot of its commercial warehouse supplies depleted to be sent to China. So now we had no masks. Um, and uh, that caused huge problems in the the hospitals and in the, the medical setting because they just didn't have the N95s that they needed or even the surgical masks. Those were short for a while too. Um, they didn't have the masks that they needed in order to keep their, um, their workers safe. And this was exacerbated by a culture that uh, emphasized single usage. Um, like they would use one N95 per patient visit and then throw it away. So a, a mask mm -hmm. might be used for like 15 minutes and then discarded. And uh, that's fine when you only have one patient every week that needs that level of protection or one patient a day that needs that level of protection because then you're just using one mask a day. But once you start getting wards filled with COVID patients and you have to visit um, maybe 50 patients a day, you go through your mask supply pretty darn quick. So, um, so that was a problem, the overconsumption. There was also the problem of the undersupply. 
Um, so I tried to tackle both respects, I, uh, both aspects. I, I did some research and I found that, hey, you can sanitize masks very easily using a toaster oven or using um, 50 degrees Celsius to uh, 90 degrees Celsius dry heat or, or moist heat could be steam for somewhere between 30 minutes and 60 minutes. And so I started supplying some uh, doctor friends with toaster ovens and with uh, instructions for how to do this. Um, I also started supplying them with uh, KN95 masks that I imported from China and, uh, and surgical masks. And the goal was to um, actually uh, try to put half of the masks on uh, medical personnel and half the masks on super spreaders or potential super spreaders like uh, bus drivers or store clerks or anybody who's in contact with either a lot of people or a highly vulnerable population. And we just never were able to get to that part because uh, the desperation from the medical staff was so great. Um, so yeah, we uh, got something like 15,000 masks uh, total. Wow. Um, and uh, we're distributing them the last, what, uh, what was 5,000 plus 4,000, last 9,000 um, arrived pretty much right when the, um, uh, the mask shortage ended. And so like we started getting reports from uh, the people who previously had been desperate for masks saying, actually, we're good now. And uh, so that was around late April, early May, I think that things started to uh, get caught up. So, so at that point, like, uh, it seemed that the uh, for-profit uh, supply chain had caught up. And so uh, we started tapering off our operations. Super interesting. And I, I find it a really nice, again, look into your way of thinking and how you approach the world. I think some of this debate that we're having in the Bitcoin Cash community um, roughly parallels, uh, I, I guess, how you think versus, say, the more axiomatic, um, well, I'll just, I'll leave it like that and so we can get into the next uh, segment here. But uh, if people are wondering why the heck is he belaboring this uh, COVID stuff and masks and why I'm asking you so much about it, it's again to kind of highlight how you work and what your modes of, of, of operation are. <laughs> 